0: The sheet, I thought it said there was going to be a congregational song, maybe I missed that, but, so um, I have been publicly speaking, teaching, preaching for 41 years, over 41 years, and one thing I've learned from that is communication is difficult. Sometimes you try and say something that comes out the wrong way or misheard or, or whatever. And so one of the um, lessons I learned even prior to that by uh, from Jim Woodruff, someone I knew from New Zealand as a missionary and then we preached at college church, he said, you're not only responsible for what you say, but you're responsible. Problems? Am I having? I'm okay. I'm at the podium. All right. Now, hello. Testing. As I said, communication is difficult. (laughs) And so, yeah, the light didn't come on at first, and it's very weak right now. So you guys can deal with that. Um, So you're responsible for not only what you say, but for what others think you say, and that's not meaning that I have to make you think a certain way. It means that I have to be sensitive to you and your hearing, and if you misunderstand or if I say something in the wrong tone of voice or something like that, I need to make correction. And if you've been here very long, you've known I've done that on uh, several uh, several times. Am I still on? I can't hear myself. They can't hear it. I'm getting yeses and noses. This is harder than I thought. <laughs> all right, let's see here. All right, hey, there we go. All right, all right, now we can hear. So anyway, let me go back to last week. Uh, last week, I said uh, told a story, and I received three communications from people I want to say I love very much, and uh, I know that they love me, or at least I I'm pretty sure they do. And, uh, or they wouldn't have re- re- respo- uh, respond, and I told them, I, okay, if you, if, you know, I probably need to make a public correction or a cl- clarification, if uh, there are three, there are probably more. I have to set this up, and I know we're on YouTube, and so years from now, someone could be listening to this, so if you're listening to this online, and you're like, well, I don't know what's going on, go back to next week, last week. Listen to that. It'll be good for you anyway. And uh, may, you may have some clarification. But I need to, uh, again, set up this scene. Uh, for those who may not know me here and those are online. My physical family is multiracial. From dark to light. And the story I told was I had uh, two of my darker grandsons in the back seat, and we were driving around doing errands together. And they were talking about, a, what I found out later, is a documentary of, uh, of uh, basketball, I believe. Uh, years, you know, for the last whatever years. And in that uh, documentary, uh, some whites mistreat some blacks. And so my youngest grandson says, yeah, I don't like white people. And my other grandson says, uh, big dog, me, big dog's white. And I love the response, and I can't see your response, whether you think it's funny or not. But the, the response was from uh, the other one, it's like, ooh, right. <laughs> and then they pretended that I didn't hear. And so I said, well, let's have a conversation, and we have a conversation about that. My point, here's, here's my point is that in my physical family, which is a Christian family, we try to follow Christ, we will not see people with favoritism or prejudice. You you know, it doesn't matter if you're a girl or a boy, dark or light. In this family, you are loved and esteemed and valued, and that's what's important. And so you treat each other right. And then I applied that, or tried to apply it to this spiritual family, and I'm saying the same thing is true here. That if you're in the spiritual family of God, then there is no favoritism, there is no prejudice in this family. You are valued, you're esteemed, you're held up. And we don't mistreat each other in God's family either. That was my point where I think I was misunderstood, I won't say misunderstood, maybe I wasn't misunderstood. The application was that I implied that I as, I'm either unaware or don't care of bad things that are happening in our world. Prejudice, racism, evil, etc. And I wanted you to know that I'm highly aware of that, and it concerns me and saddens me, and later there'll be a conversation with my grandchildren concerning those things as there were with my children concerning those things too. I'm not ignoring the reality of bad and evil things. Um, I didn't write in notes. What, what else was I going to say on that line? Um. And you know, stand up here, you go blank sometimes. Anyway, that that was my main point. My point wasn't to disparage anything. I, you know, I, I well, I, I, it just hit me. I knew it would come back to me. One of the questions I received, I received a question. What am I supposed to say to my child, adult, uh, older child, adult child, when prejudice takes place on the workplace? What am I supposed to say uh, in, in that case? And I want... You know, um, there's a lot of things to say, but I'm just going to give you two. So I, mean, I have to say what I'm not going to say. I'm, there's more to say than what I'm saying. This is not going to be a sermon. But my answer to that is the same answer I gave my children, and I, give, I will give my grandchildren as they get older. And uh, I only have an answer to Christians. I don't have an answer to those outside of Christ. There is no answer. The only answer is Christ. If you're outside of Christ, yeah, it, it's, it, it's bad. If there's two non-Christians in a bad situation, the only answer I really have, permanent answer, is you need to come. You need your heart changed. And the only way your heart's going to change is if you come into Christ. And so what I tell my Christian children, and what I plan on telling my Christian grandchildren, is based on a couple of I always try and go to the scripture for, for uh, direction is number one, and I don't and again, I'm, I'm a little sensitive I don't want to come across uh, cold or anything like that. but when you go out in the world as a Christian, expect bad things. Bad things are going to happen. This world is not and never will be utopia. Any politician, any person, any authority that tells you we can make the world a heaven on earth, a utopia, they, they're, they're either lying to you or they're just ignorant. It's not going to happen. And so in First Corinthians chapter 5... Paul says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, not at all meaning the people of the world, he had to clarify himself, who are immoral or who are greedy or who are swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. He says, basically he's saying, you go out in the world, it's terrible. There's bad stuff going on. And actually you go out there to be salt and light. You need to be salt and light amongst all this terrible stuff. But he goes on to say, in the church, in our family, in our church family, you don't put up with this kind of stuff. All, and he, and he doesn't limit it to that, I know. And so, it, when you go out in the world, I, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, as Paul said. I don't want you to be fooled. The Bible is really clear. It's bad. People are going to treat you horridly. But in this family, we don't do that. We have some control in this family. Now I've got to clarify myself. Should you not do anything? Yes. There's a lot of things you can do. My son was my grandson, my grandson was mistreated by a coach. I went and talked to the coach. I told him as kindly as I could, and as Christian as I could, that what he did was wrong. He was showing favoritism. He was doing some wrong things. Did it make a difference? Nope. Was the coach listening? Nope. Was he defensive? Yes. Was he angry at me? Yes. Did he mistreat me? Yes. But I still stood up for a grandson who could not stand up and say, that was wrong, coach. There's a time to say, if you want to sign a petition, sign a petition. Uh, Write your senators. I've done that. If you think something needs to be changed, write your congressman. I shared with you a few years ago when baby, aborted baby parts were being sold, how upset I was with that and how I believe that is a sin and wrong. I wrote my senators, my state senator, my state representative, my, uh, the, my federal, whatever they are, the congressman, all those, didn't make a difference, not, not so far. But I stood up and said, that, that is wrong. Interestingly, someone I love very much, <laughs> very close to me, after that lesson said, you, allowed, you, you gave the men a pass on that. The next Sunday I came up and said, men are responsible too. (laughs) And you are. You get someone pregnant, you are responsible for that child. Men don't get a pass. And so I had to correct myself then. So the Bible says, and, and, and it hurts, it hurts, I know. But when you go out in the world, the world will mistreat you. Expect it. And I will try to comfort you. I'll try to listen to you. I'll try to hurt with you when those things happen. But expect it. Expect to be mistreated. James, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter, is another passage that goes along this line where he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as if something strange were happening to you. You out in the world, bad things are going to happen, okay? It's not good. I don't like it. Change what you can, but expect it. And this is a part that if I were saying it, I would be, get in trouble. But P- Peter said it. God said it. So take it up with him. When you are hurt, he says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice that you are participating in that so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're living in the name of Christ, and it's not like you go and say, I'm a Christian, persecute me. But as you go through life and bad things happen, non-Christians persecute you whatever, for whatever reason. He says, rejoice. If you are insulted because of the name, the character of Christ, if you're living out the character of Christ and you're insulted... You are blessed. You are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. And he goes on. If you suffer oh, and then he says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. If you if you talk back to the coach's grandson, expect to sit on the bench. You know, you, you don't get a, you, you, you didn't suffer as a Christian there. You suffered because you were a meddler. <laughs> so that's that's what happens. So don't talk back. And then he says, and this is another thing, it's really hard for us. So then, those who suffer according to God's will. Wow. Does God will that you suffer? He said it here. Those of you who suffer according to God's will should, and this is what I've taught my children, commit themselves to their faithful creator. You suffered, you were treated wrong, you were mistreated, it was unfair, all that. Do what you can, but commit yourself to God. He's going to fix it. There's a lot of things that I can't fix and that you can't fix, and in this world will not be fixed. And so we're challenged to commit ourselves and just turn over to God. God, you're going to fix it. You believe that? That God is going to fix it one day? Yes. And then listen. And continue to do good. That's what I taught my grandkids. Be good. Be good. And so, in this world, I I don't know if I've made this as clear as mud or not. Expect bad things, change what you can. Rejoice in your suffering, turn it over to God, and keep on doing good. Man, that was a sermon, 15 minutes. Uh, I'm, of course, I'm happy to speak to anyone uh, as, as, we, as you need. Uh, and I'm not saying that I don't want you to feel sorry for me or anything like that. Don't. I mean, that's just when you speak, you say things, and you have to clarify it. Whoa, the cry of adoption. Let's see how quickly I can go through this so we can read, read so we don't have, take, you, take too much of your time. When you go to Romans chapter 8, which we're in, the very first verse undergirds the whole chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. And so as I've read this passage and as I've tried to understand a particular passage. I keep going back to that one verse and saying this is what it's based on. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we live our lives as an outgrowth of that statement. There's no condemnation, so we live according to the Spirit. Uh, The uncondemned person has learned and he's learning how to think in a new way. The person in Christ lives in peace now and he understands the reality living uh, in a body that's prone to sin and weakness, I understand. There's you, you, we don't pretend that there's no sin. Yes, there is sin, and I battle that sin. And I live in debt, not debt to pay for my sins. Jesus paid for that, but the debt is an obligation or a debt to kill the the selfishness in in me as it creeps up, as it as it lifts its head up. I am to put to death the mortal deeds of the body. And when I do that, I'm being led by the Spirit. And so he calls, Paul calls these uncondemned ones, those who exist in this, this dimension called Spirit, he calls them sons of God. We are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, But you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Sons, we are sons. We come to Christ, we come into Christ, and the Bible is just full of of trying to explain what that means. And a lot of changes occur in your life, and as you grow and mature, you see them more and more in your life. One of these is, you're called this beautiful phrase, sons of God. And I stated last week, this is not a male-only thing, just as being the bride of Christ isn't a female-only thing. We're we're sons. And, And the reason he used that word is this concept in their day and time, Paul's day and time, generally girls didn't get an inheritance. And so if he said daughters of God, it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't It wouldn't. He wouldn't be communicating the way he needed to. So, in our day and time, we can say sons and daughters. I have two daughters. They have equal inheritance in my will as my son does. All right. There, there's no special son gets more everything, and the girls get nothing. So we could, you know, we could say today, sons and daughters. And some of your translations actually uh, say that. But what this means is it's talking about when you hear that phrase, think of relationship. Think of inheritance. Think of carrying on the family line or the family characteristics we're, we're representing God himself. And so we have this concept of sons all throughout the Bible. Actually, it begins with Adam. Luke chapter 3 is this genealogy. It says, and Seth was the uh, son of Adam and Adam, the son of God. Adam himself was called the son of God. But the problem with Adam, he was... He was designed, he was created to rule the world, to represent God on earth. And he walked away from him. He said, no, I'm going to do it my way. And so he gave up his sonship. He, he left God. And you go to Israel. He's is called a son of God. Israel, the nation, was called my firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4 and other places. And, and, and again, they, they rebelled. They left God. They said, no, I, I'm not going to represent you. I'm not going to carry on your name. They didn't say it in those words, but they did it in their actions, the way they lived. They worshipped other idols instead of God. The kings of Israel, they were called sons of God. Uh, In 2 Samuel, I will be, God is speaking, I will be his father, the king, and he will be my son. And again, they rebelled, and they didn't live up to sonship either. They weren't the sons that God was calling them to. And you can say, taken after Robert here, they were shadow sons. (laughs) These all represented either the true son of God, Jesus, or I think Israel represents the church as a shadow. We won't go into that. But there's a lot, and I'm not going to, just for sake of time here, I'm not going to go through this in detail, but... Jesus was called my beloved son. You are the son of the living God, Peter said. The whole first chapter, I was going to read a bunch of that in Hebrews, chapter 1 says the son is the radiance of God's glory and you are my son. And bottom line, Jesus represented and lived out sonship the way it's supposed to be. He did it perfectly. He was the perfect son. And so he says when you put on Christ, when you came into Christ, when you became Christ, you, what Christ was, you are. It was imputed, it was credited to you, you, you got this. This was given to you as a gift, it was grace. That the perfection of Jesus in his life and sinlessness and his relationship to God is now given to you when you become a son of God. Not based on your perfection, but based on his perfection. And so you are a son. He's, he views you as a son instead of this slavery spirit that you had under law and under sin. You are now regarded as son, daughter. And we come to this passage where he, he's, he talks about two spirits here. First part of verse 15 where he says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And I right when we began this chapter, I said, a lot of times when you come to this word spirit, it's hard to figure out whether it's the Holy Spirit or your personal spirit or something else. And so, um, you know, I, I want you to know that you can understand this in two or three different ways, and it will not affect your salvation, all right? might affect your understanding, but you're, you're okay to misunderstand this passage, all right? Uh, if you think it's one way or another, let, let me explain what that means. Some think it means you did not receive from the Holy Spirit a spirit of fear, but you received from the Holy Spirit a spirit of sonship. And you say, well, yeah, that's what it says to me. Fine. Or you did not receive fear in your personal spirit, but sonship in your spirit. And so as I'm, of course, trying to make sense of the whole passage and this, I get into the technicalities of it, all right? I start looking at it, and I looked at it, and note in in that second phrase especially, the spirit of sonship, the, the word the is not there. When you say the spirit, it's usually talking about the Holy Spirit, and so several translations, including the NIV, have added the word the there, saying it's the Holy Spirit. They're trying to interpret it for you. And say, this is talking about the Holy Spirit. This is a capital S here. If you believe that, fine. That's okay. You can be wrong. (laughs) No. But this is is where I I struggled this week, trying to figure out what this means. Both are a spirit, not the spirit. Both say this. So literally it says this. You do not receive a spirit to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship or adoption. And the more I looked at that, that word can mean the spirit, our spirit, our, our, our spirit in us that has life and that has the life force in us. But it also means a wind, it means breath. It even means a disposition or an attitude. Just depends on the context. And let me give you an example. In Romans 11, verse 8, he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, a spirit of stupidity, an a- attitude, a disposition. Uh, several times... Uh, The word spirit just means the way you act, your disposition. And so I think that's what it means, especially when we connect it back to, uh, let's see here. Yeah, you did not receive a disposition of fear, but received an attitude of adoption would be the better way of, of saying that, I think. And I think so because it also ties the word for, it's at the beginning of the sentence, ties it back to being sons of God. And so it's saying, What's your attitude when you realize you're a son of God? Here it is. You have not an attitude of fear, but you have an attitude or a disposition of adoption. So we're going to look at attitude and fear. Uh, attitude not of fear, but of adoption. What When you think of God, what do you think? When you think approaching God, coming to God, what's your attitude? What's your disposition? And if you have a child, a little child, that's afraid of his father, it cowers before his father, you know there's a problem. I've known people that that are afraid, afraid of God. And this is where we came from. We came from fear. Fear of death, fear of living up to a standard, a law, being perfect, fear of punishment, And if you think about it, during that time when you lived in that state, fun was a way to distract you from fear. You fill your life with stuff, with fun, because you're afraid when the lights go out and it's quiet and you only have your mind and you think about the future. There's no hope. You're afraid. And yet, in our new life, we did not receive Afraidness. I, I, I'm not going to go off into what I'm not meaning here about the true fear of God. I just don't have time. But we did not receive afraidness. If we just move from one sphere of afraidness to another sphere of afraidness, I'm afraid as uh, Satan as my father, devil as my father, I'm afraid in that state, and now I'm going to be afraid in this state that I, with God. what, what, what have we've done? My famous phrase that the kids always tease me about six of one and half a dozen of the other it means the same the same either way am I gonna maybe I get fire insurance and when I'm living in fear of in in the afraidness of God I don't know, but the Holy Spirit is called a comforter a counselor, a teacher. His goal is to change you yes that change needs to be made you need to see where you're doing wrong and his goal is to change you he's he is the breath of God. He's the spirit of God. He's the gentle breath of God that sways you. He's moving you, not, not jerking you around there, but he's, he's moving you slowly over time into the likeness of Jesus. It's a maturity, there's a growth, there's this change that is being taken. You're moved from the realm of fear to the realm of love. And we see that in a couple of verses. For God did not give us a spirit, and this is one, an attitude again, where it comes up, an attitude. He did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. That's the, that's the attitude that God has given us. That's what we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit, of course. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. 1 John four eighteen. If you're really interested in that, get on my podcast and go all the way back and hear a whole lesson on that. But the attitude of adoption, it's something that wasn't common in the Old Testament. In fact, the word is never used in the Old Testament, the literal word. Uh, it says uh, Esther was raised as a daughter by her uncle. Moses was raised as a son, but it never says they were adopted. In the Roman culture, though, it was, it was common. It was something they did. And so he's writing to Roman Christians and using this as, yeah, it makes sense. These people would understand it. And the adopted person in their day and time was very much like ours today. They took on a new name. When you adopt a child, they take on your name. Older children, I have even known some, who have changed their first names, not just their last names. But they wanted to have a whole new identity. They were leaving an old life, and they did not want to have their old name. They, They wanted a new first name and not only a new last name. They had inheritance rights. Uh, an adult that was adopted, this is something that was a little bit different than we do, adult could be adopted, and if that happened, your debts were totally canceled. It's that, like that person no longer exists. And so some of you who are heavily in debt want to be adopted by someone. You know, it's like, you know, you left your debts when you were adopted. It was, a, it was good news. Uh, you had every legal right as a son, as an inheritor, every legal right. So it's just the same as it is today. Nero, when he was three years old, his father died. Uh, Caligula was the emperor, uh, confiscated the family wealth. Uh, a few years later, uh, his mother married the emperor Claudius. I think I'm getting my names right. And convinced Claudius to adopt Nero. As an adult, as a young man, he was adopted. He became the emperor. Full rights. I mean, he, that's how, how they would look at it. This is the attitude of adoption. It's an attitude of love. It's an attitude not of fear toward the father. The father loves the adopted child. The child in turn loves the father. And this is the attitude that God desires us to have. Is this attitude. This is the attitude, if we can ever grasp this, that will be the motivation to live according to the spirit, that God loves me and that I love him. When we realize that all God has done for us, we will respond to him. What can I do for you? You've loved me that much. And the one thing he says in this context is kill the sin. When the sin rises up, when your selfishness rises up, kill it. Kill it out of love for God. And this brings us to emotions, the emotions of the adopted. There's emotions tied to our adoption. In this church, there's, there's many, many who have been adopted and one thing I've noticed, and this has brought me joy, is that I've known some people for several years before I realized they were, before I found out they were adopted. You just didn't know. The way they were treated, the way they lived, the way they talked. There was, like their parents, you never knew they were adopted. There's no difference in treatment between the biological and the adopted children. They interact with each other the same. They, they fight the same way. They laugh, you know, they go through all that so that, that you, you don't even notice that happens a funny story with us my adopted daughter is dark skin uh my mother was uh, this happened two times and the child was around 10 or 11 years old when this happened they're talking and she said something like yeah in our family, adoption la da da and and the child said we we've adopted in our family and they go yeah like and they say, who angel and they go angels adopted I mean, their eyes got wild. They're wide, and it's like it never occurred to them. I mean, if I put a picture up here and said, "Which one's adopted?" <laughs> chances are you—you its obvious. But those children that grew up, they're like, "You're adopted," and that's the way family is. That's the way adoption is. You—you you don't notice the differences. You don't notice those things, and yet their struggles—were their struggles. Angels told me about growing up and fantasizing about what it would have been like if she had been raised by her birth mother, especially when she was mad at me. <laughs> yeah, it would have been better with my birth mother, you know. Yeah, we struggle with that, and we do. We struggle with our adoption. We, we, we struggle with, does God really love me? Does God really care for me that much? Does God love me to the extent that he loves his only son? Oh, no, I can't believe that. We struggle with that. Just like our physical adopted children struggle with their adoption at times, so we struggle with our spiritual adoption. And, our, and it becomes more apparent when we look at our condition, our true condition prior to adoption. It's one thing to adopt a newborn. They come into your family, that's all they know. But you adopt an older child who knew what they came from. They, they remember the past, they remember the suffering, they remember the, the pain. That's different. And we were adopted as adults. We weren't born into the family of God. Oh, I know, we were, yes, born again, I know that. But we, were, we came as adults. And so Ephesians 2 describes that to us. And let's just look at a few words. For as you were, and I wanted to read this whole section, but we won't. As for you, you were dead when you followed the ways of this world, gratifying the cravings. You were objects of wrath. On and on. You read that section. We came and we knew how bad it was. We knew we needed a Savior. We knew we needed hope because we didn't have any. And he says, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, that's the, that's the God that we came to that adopted us. First John chapter 3, verse 1, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That's the top ten words, English words, the uh, top ten words that I love in the English language, lavished. How great the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And it doesn't stop there because you, you just you can't believe it. And that... Is what we are. That's what we are. And when we realize that this love was expressed in adoption, God brought you in as His child. There's a heart cry. We cry out. And this word says we cry out is an emotional response. Every time this word is new, used in the New Testament, it's an emotional response. We have blind men crying out, Oh, Lord, come. Have mercy on me. They're crying out for mercy. A demon, a man who's been invaded by a demon, is screaming, the word can be translated screaming and yelling and agony and emotional agony because of this demon that has possessed him. A lynch mob in Ephesus trying to kill Paul chanted for three hours, this deafening chant, great as Artemis of Ephesus, over and screaming at the top of their voices, over and over and over. Kradzo is the word. And another lynch mob stood in front of Pilate and yelled, crucify him, crucify him, with emotion and anger. Kradzo, crucify. And when we realize, well, and last, let me tell you this: Jesus, as He died for you, the last thing He did was cry out in a loud voice, and He gave up the spirit. When we realize that we've been included into the family of God, that He's taken us into His home, He's included you as sons and daughters that we no longer stand in dread of death and judgment, but we stand before a loving Father who has an inheritance from us. We cry out emotion, Abba, Father, Abba. First word a little Hebrew child would say, they spoke Aramaic, was Abba. You know how it feels when you have a little child and they say "mama" for the first time. Well, I said "daddy," you wanted them to say and say "daddy," and they say "dada" or "daddy." That's what that word means in Fiji. The little child is walking, crawling on the floor and they say "ta ta ta." Same thing. You translate this into Fijian, it should be, and we cry out "ta," father. Ta In English we call Daddy. Daddy. Does God's heart leap for joy when his children say Abba? Daddy. The only thing that will truly change us is not my list on the bathroom mirror. Things I need to do to change. It's okay to have them. And it's not going to come from my parole officer or a church program or a preacher. Change is not going to occur. Not real change if you live in fear. Change only comes when I realize what it means to be adopted by the creator of the universe. And my heart cries out, Abba father god has poured out his love into our hearts by the holy spirit who he has given us you see at just the right time when we were still powerless christ died for the ungodly very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. When we were in our worst state, when we were dead in our sins, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Abba, Father. Backing up to verse 12 through this verse in my paraphrase. So then we are in debt. We don't owe our selfish and self-centered self a nickel. We don't deserve or owe anything to me. For if one lives and exists for me, then that person is knocking on the door of death. But the one who is outward focused towards God's spirit and his ways are in a constant battle. You continually put up a fight to the death. Each time selfish me raises its head in defiance of God. And this daily battle isn't through one's own power, but by the Spirit's strength in you. By fighting selfish me, you will live. For all those who are walking hand in hand with the Spirit, going from one daily fight with self to the next, ever moving toward Christ-likeness, these and only these are sons and daughters of God. In today's verse, Because you are sons and daughters of God, you absolutely did not clasp, as you once did, to a disposition of slavish fear. On the contrary, you embrace the temperament of an adopted child in which the whole of your being swells up in a cry of joy. Oh, Daddy, Father. God bless us as we try to live for him. I'm sorry when went a little over. I look for your grace.